Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Give me a minute so I can talk to you about one of my favorite new products, Bespoke Post. It delivers a monthly themed box of awesome, full of goods to upgrade your style, your apartment, and your life. Bespoke Post has new boxes every single month that you are guaranteed to dig and no commitments either. Bespoke Post lets you know which box they've picked out for you on the first of every month and then you've got five days to keep it, switch it, or just skip it. I'm telling you, I look forward to this every single month. I can't wait to bust open that box of awesome. It's kind of like a present from myself to myself once a month. And now you too can experience this at boxofawesome.com. Bespoke Post scouts out quality and unique products from around the world and then delivers them to you every single month without high retail markups. To get started, visit boxofawesome.com, answer a few short questions, and then they'll get a feel for the boxes that will best go with your style. To receive 20% off your first subscription box, go to boxofawesome.com and enter promo code ROME at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, promo code ROME. Get 20% off your first box. Again, bespoke post, theme boxes for guys that give a damn. Tiger hadn't played well, and, and Stevie's trying to figure out what's going on, and he just goes, you know, I think I want to be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you know anything about Stevie Williams, and I, say, and kidding me like, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah stevie kind of looked at him like are you out of your mind <laughs> right. you know you're 32 years old and hank heaney's the same way he's like dude you're the best golfer on the planet i don't think navy seals is in your future welcome to the jim Rome podcast this is episode 44 and my guest is new york times best-selling author and an 11-time emmy award winner armin katan Armin is widely regarded as one of the finest investigative journalists on the planet, and he put all of his skills to work, spending three years along with co-author Jeff Benedict, researching, reporting, and writing the definitive Tiger Woods bio to date called Simply Tiger Woods. Armin and Jeff did the unthinkable. They got behind the curtain of the cat, and this 400-page book is mind-blowing. The research that went into it is staggering. They read every book of significance about Tiger, more than 20 in all. They reviewed transcripts of more than 320 official press conferences from 1996 to 2017. They conducted more than 400 interviews with over 250 people from every walk of Tiger's life, from his childhood right here in Southern California to his neighborhood in Isleworth, where he famously bounced his Escalade off a fire hydrant and then wrapped it around a tree. The authors watched hundreds of hours of footage. They read thousands of newspaper, magazine, and journal articles. They assembled a 120-page timeline of Tiger's entire life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
This conversation with Armin goes for more than one hour, and we could have easily done several more. So get ready for an absolutely fascinating pod on the one, the only Tiger Woods. Listen, it stands to reason. When you get a good night of sleep, you're going to have energy. When that happens, you'll feel good. You'll feel awesome. And that's why you have to be sleeping on a Casper mattress. It helps you get a great night of sleep every single night. You see, the Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams to give you that great sleep. You spend one-third of your life sleeping, you should be comfortable. It's breathable design lets you sleep cool. And this is something I didn't know. It's breathable design, lets you sleep cool. Now, here's something I didn't know. It regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And let me tell you, there are a lot of people raving about the Casper mattress. More than 20,000 others love their Casper mattress, giving it an average rating of 4.8. You can't argue with results like that. And here's yet another reason. The price will not keep you up at night. So why is it so affordable? Because Casper cuts out the middleman and delivers it straight to you. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Go to Casper.com, use the code ROAM, save $50 on the purchase of select mattresses. Casper.com, code ROAM, and save your 50 bucks. Terms and conditions do apply. See site for details. I love my Casper. I know you'll love yours. Tiger Woods, the biography that Armin Katayan and Jeff Benedict wrote, does not read like any sports biography. In fact, it reads more like Shakespeare. It tackles the stratospheric rise, the colossal fall, and then the eventual return of Tiger Woods, who tees off at the Open Championship this Thursday, looking to win his first major in over a decade. It's a fascinating read, but the authors are not looking to judge in writing this book, but they do pose two questions. Who is the real Tiger Woods, and what is the price of genius? Two very good questions. And after listening to this conversation, you may, in fact, have the answers. So, Armin, it's so good to see you. First, let me first say that you and Jeff Benedict have written 25 nonfiction books combined, and many others have taken a big swing at Tiger Woods before. So i got to ask, this guy... At this point in your life and your career, why did you want to take this project on? Well, Jeff and I asked ourselves that question uh, more than once. Trust me, mm-hmm. we it we have both agreed, uh, and you're right. Uh, you know, Jim, 25 between the two of us. This is the most. This was the most difficult one by um, a large measure because um, it's Tiger Woods. He's he's living. Um, he's got a very powerful public relations machine around him. Um, but in our research before we really decided to do this, we realized fairly early on that there had been a number of books, obviously 20 that we ended up reading, but each of them in many ways just dealt with certain sections of his life. Um, after he turned pro, there was that spate of books that came out that, that talked a little bit about his growing up and all his success on the amateur circuit. Uh, after the... Um, the crash in, in 09, there was another group of books that came out that sort of dealt with the fall, but there had never been this comprehensive 360 degree look at his life. And for me personally, at this point in my life, you know, you're, you're looking for these um, projects that, that test every bit of your skill as a journalist, whether it's the reporting, the writing, finding people, putting things in perspective, 
Um, and, and Jeff and I wanted to write something that would stand the test of time. And, and you know, I think we've done that. Armin, so talk methodology. I mean, I'm, I'm really anxious to get into all this, but in terms of methodology, how many interviews did you conduct? Who are the types of people that you spoke to? And how'd you go about compiling the research for something like this? Because I know it took three years to get this done. Yeah, it was a, you know, it was a, like putting a puzzle together with a thousand different pieces to it. Um, when Jeff and I wrote the system together, uh, we wrote very specific chapters and you'd be hard pressed to figure out which one I wrote and which one Jeff wrote. Uh, they melded together um, really easily. This was not going to work that way. So you, we actually collaborated. Um, but what we did, we started by reading literally everything of significance that had been written about Tiger Woods, including, as I said, all these different books that had been written by very prominent golf writers, um, the likes of Tom Callahan or John Strage, John Feinstein. Um, and then we had access, because we had both worked for the magazine, to Sports Illustrated's comprehensive library, which had thousands and thousands of clips mm. dating back to his days here in, in, um, in Orange County. Um, Did he and, ever say anything of substance at all in any of those clips? Oh my God. It's like, it was like you being an archeologist or I, I, I laughed <laughs> about it, a tigerologist at times when you're <laughs> sifting through. And I went through every single press conference of significance that he had ever had. You can find those online. And we had one of our ACE reporters, Tim Bella, put it together where I could, it was color coded and I could search by words. So if he was talking about Earl, I could, I could search Earl and, and it was, it had to be, I think it was 320 different press conferences that, that we <laughs> broke down. And I would find these little nuggets where he would say something, where he would reveal something huh. about himself or about his family life, or you could fact check some of the stuff that was being said about um, where he said, you know, I used to play a lot of team sports and we could never he find did? No, he didn't. When? Yeah, that's exactly right. So that was part of the process. And then um, we put together this massive timeline, which I think I'd never done that before in a book, which proved to be the most significant thing we did because it, you got the complete arc of his life. And then when we started to slot in very specific and sometimes not well-chronicled moments in his life, um, a picture began to emerge. And it might have been a picture from his childhood or it might have been a picture from a certain period of his pro career. But like, let's just say he won the Masters in 97, but at the same time, IMG is signing him to all these different commercial deals. So his, not only his popularity in Tiger Mania explodes, but his time becomes very precious. So you start to understand what's happening in his life. And then we went out and interviewed 250 people. Mm. And to get to your part of that question is a lot of those people in this book had never been interviewed before. And whether it was Peggy Lewis, the woman that Tiger stayed at her house at Augusta, um, or whether it was even Alicia O'Meara, Mark's first wife, who was Tiger's first mother, um, or whether it was his, um, his really of significance, his first girlfriend. Um, there were all these people that moved in and out of his life intersected with his life at certain points in time. And, you know, the art was trying to A, find them, B, convince them that our, our intentions were good, that we wanted to write a fair biography, and then D or C, go do the interviews, and then D, you know, put them in perspective in the book. So it was, it was a massive amount of work. I mean, I was 
for times just, I mean, living, breathing, sleeping, dreaming about this guy. See, now here's the thing, Armin. I mean, knowing you, you want to make sure that you do the definitive work. You want to do something that's never been done before. And you interviewed hundreds of people between you and Jeff Benedict, but not the guy you really wanted. And that was Tiger himself. And you tried, of course. You tried. He was not willing to do it without conditions. But let me ask you this. If the whole goal is to get into Tiger Woods' head, to see the world as Tiger sees it, how can you do that if you don't have access to the guy? Well, you have to do it piece by piece. You have to do it through the eyes of people that, you know, no, did we get um, Brian Bell, who's been his best friend? Did we get Mark Steinberg? No. Did we get Hughes Norton, who was his first agent? No. But in certain places, if you look and you look hard enough and you look in the right places, you um, and you talk to people that interacted with a Hughes Norton or a Mark Steinberg or um, a Brian Bell, a picture begins to emerge. And when you go through as I said, 300-plus press conferences of Tiger Woods, there, there are things that's, that are said about his father and about his mother and about his childhood and about, um, for example, you know, why he loves to skin dive and scuba dive, and a little thing, because, because fish, fish don't ask for autographs, you know? <laughs> and that's, that tells you something. Wow. There's no pressure down there in terms of being in the public eye, um, you know, there's a reason his boat is named, his yacht is named Privacy. Uh, there's, there's all these, and like we interviewed his scuba instructor. Um, and what we learned very quickly from, from Herb was, is that A, Tiger is a, is a phenomenal, you know, hand-eye coordination, which you would understand from golf. But B, he picked up skin diving and, and spearfishing like an expert. And he loves the water. He loves to escape. And when you start to put that in perspective as to, you know, what, what's it like to be Tiger Woods? What's it like to be the most famous athlete on the planet during the time that he was that person? Social media was changing. TMZ was there. The National Enquirer is after him. Um, they pick up his scent and start to follow him, which was one to me, one of the more fascinating parts of the book. Um, so did we want Tiger Honestly, in the end, I didn't think that he was going to give us anything that he hadn't already said. For sure. To, to, to Lauren Rubenstein in that Time Magazine article at the end of December and on the verge of his 40th birthday, which was as revealing as Tiger has ever been mm. to anybody. And even his own book, which came out in eight, last April, um, we mined that thing like, you know, there, it, was, it was worth a million dollars to us because there were little things in there that he said that either fact-checked what we were writing or altered what we were writing or gave us greater um, insight into his thinking. So um, I- I'm kind of glad we didn't get him in a way. Sure. All right, so one of the driving questions of the book, as you've pointed out, is who is Tiger Woods? Who is Tiger Woods? You spent three years trying to answer that question. Is there a simple way to answer that? Who is this guy? Well, the word that came to mind of a lot of people was, was complicated. I mean, he is a very complicated guy. Uh, he's a genius. You know, no question. He's a transcendent athlete, changed the game of golf. We kept thinking of his life in terms of Shakespeare and all the different acts. Um, The other question that was driving us uh, is what's the price of genius? Uh And I think in the end of this book, you understand that this is an athlete. This is a person. um, I think more so than raised was programmed by his parents to change the world, not just change the game of golf. I mean, Earl put him on the same pedestal as as Gandhi and Buddha. 
Um, I mean, not even Arthur Ashe or Muhammad Ali. No, Gandhi. I mean, we're talking about changing nations and changing the world. And in many respects, Tiger did that in a lot of ways. I mean, he certainly changed the game of golf financially, racially, socially, culturally, and every other Lee you can probably name. And in many ways, he changed racially. He certainly changed the game. Um, we can argue whether, you know, there's enough African-Americans playing the game now or not, and there aren't. Um, but it, he, is, he is one of the most, he is the most complicated athlete I've ever uh, run across. And at the same time, um, you end up feeling uh, sad and sorry for him in long stretches of this book because I think you understand this young kid who was a nerd who stuttered until, you know, he was like seven years old, who was ill-suited for the kind of extreme fame and fortune that smashed into him like a hurricane, um, became very defensive, very entitled, um, and struggled with that kind of extreme fame and fortune in a way that um, you start to understand him and, and appreciate and feel sorry for him. But at the same time, you're looking at some of the most humane interactions that you and I have every day with people. Thank you. Please. I appreciate that. Completely absent in Tiger's life. So that's a long-winded way of saying he's, you know, there's a lot to him. And I can't really, it would do a disservice to the book and a disservice to him, I think, if I said he's, he fits into a box because mm -hmm. he doesn't. He's his own, he's his own box. And it's, there's a lot of stuff in that box. Yeah, I would imagine. You know, you talk about how he was kind of pre-wired for it, pre-programmed for it. What was it like? What was it like for him growing up in this small house in yeah. Southern California with those two parents? What was that like? What was that it house was, like? It was, it was eerie to me in a way. You know, it's, it, you think about 1,474 square feet of home. Um, no brothers, no sisters, no, um, no chores, no responsibilities. Golf, right? Golf, practice, school, golf, practice, school. That was his life from the time he was, you know, f four years old. Hmm. One of the really odd scenes to me is, think about when you were in kindergarten and, you know, you're... Um, just a kid, right? You barely know anything, you know, addition, subtraction, any of that stuff. Tiger Woods, and nobody knew this, was a celebrity by the time he was five years old. Right. He had been on the Mike Douglas show. He had been on That's Incredible. Um, I mean, he was, you know, he was like on his way to being in People magazine. He's five years old. I, And that house had, on one hand, you had Earl, who was this very powerful force, and on the other hand, you had Tita, who in her own way um, was the kind of the original Tiger mom and, and a force in her own way as far as, you know, that killer instinct that Tiger had on the golf course. That didn't come from Earl. You know, like Tita would say, Earl, he cry, he have tears. You know, I, no, tears from, no tears from Tita. So it was, it was like, I can't even imagine. It's stereophonic parenting, helicopter parenting from the time you're literally crawling out of a high chair and your dad goes, get out here, you know, at 11 months old to Tito, we have a genius on our hands. And, and it had to be in some ways just 
smothering. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know how, I, I don't know how Tiger got to where he is. Um, and you could argue the reason he got to where he is, where he is today, is because of his parents. But then you look at it and go, wow, there's a what an enormous price to pay personally for that. Hmm. Now you'll find this hard to believe, but the truth is, most of us are brushing our teeth all wrong. We're not doing it for long enough. We forget to change our brush on time, and it's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than just better brushing, but not Quip. So what makes Quip so different? For starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth properly. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when it's time to switch sides. Also, Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. And finally, everybody loves Quip. They run Oprah's O-List, named one of Time's Best Inventions, and is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Quip starts at only $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Rome, right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Rome. Once again, G-E-T. Q-U-I-P dot com. Getquip.com slash Rome. I have mine. I absolutely love it. So what about Earl? Was Earl a good role model or a bad role model well, for him? Earl was a complicated man. I mean, you talk about, I think in many ways, Earl was a, a great father to Tiger because he spent a lot of time with him in his 40s. He had him on the golf course. They bonded there. But Earl was a man of, uh, you know, um, of many desires. I mean, he, he, I'm not, you know, I mean, look, the book talks about his, his wanton womanizing, his drinking. Um, there was story after story of, of him hitting on, on women at various golf tournaments. Uh, I can't imagine being 17 or 18 years old um, and walking into a 7-Eleven, as we recite in the book, and, and there's your dad hitting on the girl behind the counter, you know, mm-hmm. who's making Slurpees for people. I mean, it's, like dad and then tiger said to him dad let's go you can do better than that i mean what is that so i mean earl was a uh, was driven by his own racial i think demons in his life because uh unquestionably he had been discriminated against in the military and at the navy course where where um earl was was a was a member um and i think that i think that tiger saw all that um, and, but Earl was a, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Earl's buried in an unmarked grave. We know that. Right, so by the way, what is that? Earl, Earl is the guy who used to wear the hat. It's like, I'm Tiger's dad. Earl yeah. was the guy, look at me, look at me, look at what I created. Look at my son. That, that is the craziest thing ever that he's in an unmarked grave. Yeah. But there's a reason for that. What is, is that? Well, I think that's Tita's revenge. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's Tita's last words to Earl in terms of you treated me with disrespect uh, we have in the book, certainly there's times when Earl was very verbally abusive to Tita. He was flagrant in his womanizing at a time when they were separated, but not divorced because they didn't want to get I mean, Norman, divorced. Can I interject? He, yeah. His womanizing, I mean, he was a bigamist, right? Yeah, he was. Yeah. I mean, that was a, 
that was a revelation. Into, and we found that through court records and everything else. I mean, you know, Earl would play around with dates all the time. But he and Tito were married in 1969 in New York City. He was not officially divorced from Barbara, his first wife, until March of 1972. So there was a three-year period. And according to the California law and according to all the court documents we have, uh, the court made it clear that they were still husband and wife and that there had been no dissolution of the marriage. And Earl was married for three years to Tita before there was an official divorce in California. And Earl, in his own way, said, um, you know, I don't know anything about California, but I'm not a bigamist. Mm, well, right. under and, and the fact that he went to Mexico to get a, a Mexican divorce to present to his first wife when she was recovering from very serious surgery, um, I mean, that was Earl. I mean, Earl was the, was the, you ask where Tiger got his entitlement from, there's one direction you look, and that's that E in entitlement stands for Earl as well. All right, so when he's seeing all this, and he's seeing the womanizing going on, he's going to be, I mean, he's seeing his dad at a 7-Eleven or a convenience store hitting on somebody making the slurpees. Yeah. He's taking this all in. What kind of an impact do you think that had on Tiger and subsequently his relationship with women? I don't think it was good, for sure. Um you know, Tiger's relationship with women, I think, is one of the reasons this book has really resonated with women. I mean, we've had a lot of women readers who don't care about golf, don't know about golf, but have been drawn into the relationships that Tiger has with his mom, beginning with that one, and then Dina Gravel, his first true love, and how that implodes, and then his search for a woman that, whether it was Joanna Jagoda, who was a total class act, um, or as you find Elon who represents, in certain ways, the perfect wife. But at the same time, Tiger is, I mean, he has one mistress after another. And, and you know, Jim, we're not, I am the last person to stand up on a, on a soapbox and say and judge other people. What we tried to do in this book was lay things out so you understand people's actions. And we're not judging them as like, how can you, how can he do this? Well, I don't know what it's like to be the most famous person on the planet. Um, you're pretty famous. I think you can, I mean, you can multiply your life by 10,000 and maybe get to where Tiger was, where he couldn't even go into a restaurant or he has changed. I mean, 10,000 10, people show up at an airport in, in um, Japan to greet him. I, I can't even, I can't really grasp what it's like to be as famous as Tiger was 24 seven, 365. Um, but to me, his relationship with women uh, is a driving force of the book. And what happens like with Lindsey Vaughn and how they break up and she's just like so many others is just cut out of his life. And Rachel, you could tell um, who I think, if I'm playing amateur psychologist here, was as close to what Tiger wanted as any woman he had ever met. She was Which was what? She was very smart, glamorous, worldly, um, damaged. And I think Rachel would be the first one um, to tell you that she had her own issues in life. But they connected. And um, that text that he sent to Rachel that was really the beginning of the end on that Thanksgiving night, you're the only one I've ever loved. I can't, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And... But you talk about something that your wife would read. Huh. 
I don't know how you, um, I don't know how you recover. I don't know how a marriage kind of recovers from something like that. And it didn't, frankly. And it didn't. So on that night, I mean, we can skip ahead to that. On that night, December, or I should say November 2009, when he bounced the car off the fire hydrant and the tree and Elon was coming after him with a nine or she wasn't, how many women was he seeing at that point? Four. Yeah. He was seeing Elon. He was seeing Rachel. And he was seeing two other Jamies at that point of his life. You know, you talk about compartmentalization. That's where I'm going next. I mean, <laughs> I Armin, mean, if this is, I mean, if this is not only the most famous athlete in the world, arguably the most famous person in the world, or certainly on the short list, you can only imagine the responsibilities that come along with that every single day, both inside the ropes and outside the ropes. Andy's married, Andy's seeing four women. Exactly how did he do that? He he had this innate, almost, I don't know, um, uh, I don't even know what the word for it is, ability to compartmentalize his life. You were in this little slot. If you were Jamie Grubbs or if you were Rachel Yucatel or you were um, another one of the women in his life, and he would see him on his terms, on his time, uh, for his needs, and that was it. And so they they filled a, a certain hole in his life or a certain issue in his life. I don't know, but... But Jimmy, at the same time, he wins five tournaments in 2009. He's like the player of the year. He's, but you can see in the book where it's accelerating and the, the, his need for sex is accelerating. And it's not really about sex. It's about you know, pain relief is what it is. It's a form of pain relief like drinking or drugs or gambling or whatever it is, self-medication. But he's, he's headed off the cliff and you've seen it now, basically start starting in maybe 2004. See, that's key. We didn't we didn't know this, right? Because we no, had we no didn't. idea. Nobody no. knew. We assume all of a sudden this guy's came off the rails in 2009. No. When did that train really start to come off the tracks? I think it was in 2004 when, you know, he is really at that point in time, um, you know, as famous as any athlete in the world. He gets married. Um, he thinks this is what he wants. And again, I'm, I know I'm on, on a little bit of playing amateur psychologist here, but, but Elon was the perfect woman to sure. him. But he doesn't even honestly slow down hmm. in his uh, outside activities with women. And then Earl dies. In, in 06. In 06. And a lot of people have pointed to that as the line of demarcation. I think in a lot of ways it, it broke Tiger um, because he didn't have anybody other than his father, even though they were somewhat estranged at that point in time, it was still a call he could make and listen to what his dad had to say for advice. Now, when it, you're talking about multiple affairs, you know, Earl was in that same boat, but Tiger had so few people around him that he could trust most of those people that were there to help him, whether it was John Merchant early on or or even, you know, um, other people in his life that had been had been systematically removed. Um, he didn't have a best friend. He didn't really have somebody that he could confide in the way that you and I do, you know, with friends that we can say or could say to us, you're messing up here, dude, you know. And I think I because think he cut train, them out if they did. Right. Right. And that train started to accelerate, I think, in, in 06 for sure. But it was chugging pretty hard down the track, picked up speed. And you can see in 07, 08, and then certainly in 09 when he loses. I thought that loss to Y. Yang in the PGA 
was, you know, Stevie Williams talks about this thing called the snowball effect when at, at a moment when you miss a putt that you had never missed before, which Tiger did on the 13th hole for a birdie that would have put him, you know, would have put Yang away basically in that, in that match, misses it, ends up not playing well. You know, the last four holes or so, five holes. He had never missed a putt like that on that stage before. Never. I mean, you think about 08 to Torrey when he makes that incredible putt on 18 to Ty Rocco that nobody in their right mind makes. Like, you know, I've been down there, Joe DeBach, who's the head pro. I've talked to him about it. He goes, that's a, that's a one in a thousand putt but for most people. You know, for a pro, maybe one in a hundred, you know, makes that putt. But he makes it because he always made it. And, but when your life is so out of control, it, this is August of 09. He hits that fire hydrant in November of 09. He's, he's seeing Rachel Yucatel at that time because he met her in the summer of 09. She has complicated his life in a, in a, in a very different way because their relationship um, was, was just different on an emotional level. The other girls were there to fill Tiger's sort of needs. Rachel came in, um, and 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 they they found a different kind of love for each other. And um, I can't, you know, I, it's just you're just you know you're just looking at him, going, okay, we know what's going to happen on November twenty seventh. Here we are in August. You miss a big putt, you lose the PGA first time. That's ever happened. To Yang, of to all Yang. people. Yeah. I mean, for those who forget, like, yeah. where did that guy come from? What, yeah. what was Yang's he was, deal? He, he was the son of a vegetable farmer who didn't get his, I think he didn't start to play, and I was some of this off the top of my head, until he was like 21 years old. He had won a PGA event, the first one, um, that year earlier, had to make a, had to make kind of a miraculous putt to qualify for the tour. He was, an, he was an unknown. He was a nobody, but there's that great scene, and this was Ian O'Connor. It wasn't me from ESPN. I give him credit. Uh, he wrote a subsequent story, and there's literally guys up, jumping up and down in the clubhouse on a couch as, as Yang, it looks like Yang's going to be Tiger, and it was all these, you know, somebody's going to finally slay the dragon, as we say in the book, and that, and that, but that dragon wasn't the same guy at that point in time. You know, he might have thought he was. We didn't know. We, we didn't, didn't know. know. In fact, Armin, Armin, who knew? He's living this double life, and he's coming off the tracks. How many people close to him knew about that double life? I'd have to say Brian Bell, who's his best friend, who was... Set the, up some of the trysts. Set up some of the trysts. Um, I, I don't think Stevie Williams knew. Um, really? I, I don't think Even he Stevie did. didn't know. He might have... I don't know. I'm not even going to say suspected because Stevie has been very clear that he just did not know. Hank Haney didn't know. And Jeff and I interviewed Hank together because we thought he was so important. And, and we, you know, I would say grilled him about, come on, Hank, how is it possible? And he's like... I was going to say the same thing about Stevie. I'm sorry. I, mean, I was going to say, like, when, when Stevie first started to say, I didn't know, I didn't know, I'm like, come on, that's bullshit. Stevie, yeah. Stevie would have to know. But when I hear you tell it and having read the book, maybe they didn't know. At least I, not you know, to that extent. Not to that extent. I mean, I think there were times when Stevie looked sideways at something and went, well, why, who's that girl? Mm -hmm. You know, why is she around? But to the extent that Tiger was living this double, triple, quadruple life, I know. Um, Mark Steinberg had to know. I mean, clearly, because he's was putting out a lot of those fires. I was going to say, how much stuff did he have to clean up? Yeah, of course. I mean, there was a lot of that going on. And it wasn't just it wasn't just Tiger. I mean, you can go back into Earl's life where Earl is living, you know, on the Teakwood house in Cyprus, in the Teakwood house in Cyprus, and he has this um, 
bevy of women that are coming and ser- servicing virtually every need of Earl from his own masseuse to his own manicurist, pedicurist, to his own executive assistant, to his own executive travel assistant, to his, some of them which were on the Tiger Woods um, Corporation payroll, many of whom, most of whom were being paid um, out of Earl's own pocket for money that he was receiving from, from Tiger for various duties. But it was a, uh, I'll just quote somebody that we have in the book, I mean, a horror show, every cabinet, every drawer. Well, well, that because, the, 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 I mean, literally and figuratively, the sex toys coming out of the drawers yeah. and the porn, porn that he'd be, on the he'd be watching yeah. all day long, right? Yeah, and this was from a woman um, who Jeff and I interviewed um, who worked yeah, for Earl for a long period of time. So uh, we would never, and there were many things that people told us, I mean, this is a this is about as high of a wire as I've ever been on in terms of, you know, you cannot afford to get anything of significance wrong, and because you're just asking for uh, a lawsuit. Yes. And Jeff and I went through this thing, and we frankly, right up until the end, were making decisions as to what stayed in the book and what came out of the book, um, because uh, I just it just wasn't worth it at a certain point in time. Do we really need to add one more? thing about X, Y, and Z. No, we felt like we had covered the, uh, the waterfront in, in terms of his life. And, and um, we made a lot of, um, you know, some people have said, oh, it's just tabloid. It's a tabloid book. I'm it's like, not. It's, it's, it's not at all. Yeah. I mean, I it's a lot of things. I want to be very clear about this. It's not. It's yeah. not at all. It's, and, it's, but we made those decisions, Jim, you know, because we were like, um, we wanted to give the reader enough of an understanding as to why he ended up hitting that fire hydrant and who he was and what the cost of genius is but we, we didn't feel it was necessary to to pile on in any in any way it's not and it's not in any way gratuitous or anything like that now armin there's a big part of the book that a lot of people were waiting for because of your investigative background because of jeff's reputation and because people want to know and that's peds yeah. you know long the rumors about tiger possibly using peds did you hear or uncover anything that would lead you to believe that he did use, knowingly? Well, what we have in the book is as far as we, we wanted to go, which is farther than anybody's ever gone in terms of the statement that was given to us, a declaration, a legal declaration by you know, Dr. Mark Lindsay, who worked on Tiger for hundreds of hours. Uh, and I know Mark. I've known him d- dating back to the days when Bill Romanowski used him when he was in Denver and, and, and with the Raiders. Uh, Mark is one of the great uh, active release uh, chiropractors in the world and had worked on hundreds of, of Olympic and, or elite athletes. Yeah, we heard the rumors and certainly there was a, a, a poll that we cite um, that Sports Illustrated took a poll of, you know, a couple of dozen PGA pros who said that, you know, like a quarter of them suspected the Tiger was using. Um, certainly there were telltale signs of his body changing. But in the same respect, nobody's, and certainly no professional golfer ever spent the kind of time Tiger did in the gym, two hours a day, twice a day. Um, nobody worked as hard on the range uh, as he did for long stretches of time. Um, were there, are those, was the, his body changing a, um, an indication that he was using something? Yeah, it, certainly. And we have Victor Connie, you know, from Belco fame and fortune, um, or infamy, uh, suggesting that very same thing. But that is the that is the third rail with Tiger Woods people, and we we knew 
that unless we had it stone cold, dead to rights, um, defensible in court, documented in, in on, with a piece of paper or an email or somebody on the record saying something who was in a position to know, we, we were just not going to go there. And I think what we have here is, is the most, I know what we have, is the most definitive statement to date by somebody who was in a position to know, and Mark Lindsay is unequivocal in saying that Tiger never used. Now, we also say, Dr. Tony Gallia, who was the uh, Toronto uh, doctor, very, very famous for his work with, with um, elite athletes, his so-called cocktail of healing, where we do know, both in court records and from statements from other people, that minuscule amounts of HGH and testosterone were part of that cocktail to accelerate recovery from an injury. Is that performance enhancing? Um, we also say in the book that Tiger received those injections that contained, quote-unquote, minuscule amounts of HGH and testosterone as part of his recovery process from uh, both in his Achilles and his knee. Uh, was Tiger aware of that? The odds are he probably wasn't aware of what was in that particular Let me ask injection. about that because and this is really key right here because the guy we're talking about here was a disgraced doctor, a Canadian doctor, who was arrested for smuggling HGH into the U.S., so now this does not mean that he gave him PEDs or does it or small traces. What do we really know? What we know is what we say is that is that Gallia treated Tiger, you know, um, I'm off the top of my head now. I think it's uh, 14 different times uh, in Florida where he's not licensed to practice medicine. He was investigated by the Florida Department of Health. We have all those court records. I have all the records out of both Toronto and Buffalo where where his assistant was stopped at the Canadian border coming into the United States um, with his kit in her car, uh, which contained HGH. Uh, Gallia saying it was for his own personal use. Look, there's a lot of smoke there. Um, and But was there a fire associated with Tiger Woods? Again, unless, unless Tony Gallia, um, who, uh, again, I would say, you said disgraced. I would say he got caught. Um, but he was a guy that everybody and their mother who was an elite athlete who was injured was going to. And he's on the cutting edge, whether it was plasma replacement therapy or, or um, any of the kind of things that he was doing up there. Those kind of athletes found their way to Tony Gallia because he was better than anybody else in the world at that time in helping people recover. Was, that, was testosterone and HGH part of that? In certain kind of cases, it was. In Tiger's case... Man, if you don't have that thing dead to rights, you might that. as well just, you know, yeah, I mean, sign it, it, up for a lawsuit. I almost want to stop asking the question because I know, <laughs> you, I know what you're saying. Let me just ask you this, and it, maybe it's speculation. Did Tiger, do you think, did he go to him because he was a pioneer in healing, or did he go to him because he thought that he might? I mean, cheating's a strong word, but did he go mm -hmm. to him because he was cheating? I would argue that if Tiger Woods wanted to cheat, he could find a doctor in Isleworth or in Orlando or Florida somewhere, which is the home of anti-aging clinics. <laughs> right. And, or he could have, he knew several doctors who were members in Isleworth, who he played golf with. And we got close to some of those people. Um, they would not talk to us. Uh, I don't think he needed to go to Canada or for Tony Gallia to bring PEDs across the border into the United States 
to treat Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods could um, could have gotten it from any number of people that he, that would have willingly uh, given him whatever, especially testosterone or HGH. There's guys. There, there's a there's a clinic I was in um, down in 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 San Diego um, that that's basically um, it's basically for women, but there's a tea clinic next door, and I'm like, what's going on in there? Because there was a parade of guys, huh. and I'm talking dozens over a course of several hours that I watched go in and out of this clinic. I finally asked, and they said, oh, that's a testosterone clinic. There's guys that are going in there and getting. Uh, either shots or or they're getting pills. I'm like testosterone. You can get on the internet. I can go to my own doctor and and, and say I I need a boost. Tiger wouldn't have needed to to go all the way to Canada to get that stuff if he needed it. And you know I I don't know. And I and I frankly I understand where you're going. And trust me, we had these conversations till we were blue in the face. Um, and we had them with our attorneys and we had them between ourselves. And I, I'll I'll stand on what's in the book because. Uh, if you know you step one one inch in the wrong direction in that thing, you're you're just asking for trouble. No, I get that. And, what, and as you point out, what's in the book is much further and more definitive than we've ever seen before. One last thought about that because you brought up Victor Conte. Conte maintains. Tell me I'm wrong, but Conte maintains that Woods' long history of injury is in fact a result of PED use, yeah. or might be. He's not the only guy saying that. No. What do you make of that speculation? I think it's I think it's very believable that because Tiger had a series a set of injuries that are not common for professional golfers. But at the same time, who worked out like he worked out, um, that was using the kind of weights that he was using, that practiced the, the amount of hours, that was training to be a Navy SEAL at one point in time, jumping out of airplanes. What was that, by the way? That was, that was uh, following dad's footsteps kind of stuff, okay. and reliving dad's life, trying to understand what his father had gone through. And, um, you know, that was a... I mean, that scene where... Uh, it's Shinnecock. I think it was 04. And, and they're, he and Stevie are driving away. Williams are driving away from the, from the club that day. And Tiger hadn't played well. And, and Stevie's trying to figure out what's going on. And he just goes, you know, I think I want to be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you know anything about Stevie Williams. Did and you I, say, and are I you fucking kinda, kidding me? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Stevie kind of looked at him like, are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> right. You know, it's like, again, you're, you're 32 years old. You know, there's a ton. And Hank Heaney's the same way. He's like, dude, you're the... You're the best golfer on the planet. I don't think, you know, Navy SEALs is in your future. And Tiger was, like, he was He's like, like what? obsessed with it. Yeah. And so you add all of that in, and he was running like crazy. He could go out and run eight or nine miles just to, you know, burn off whatever energy he wanted to. I, all of those things, um, certainly, as we're weighing one against the other, it's easy. And Victor was, I thought, very careful in his and how he phrased it, it would be easy to just point in that direction and go, well, of course he did. But look at all the other stuff that he was doing, and his body is, is, is barking back at him in a lot of different ways. I think, 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 frankly, what he did in 08 on that Sunday at the Open on a broken leg, I mean, a broken leg. Without an ACL. Without an ACL, stands as one of the greatest athletic achievements of all time. And, and then, then to go and get that surgery, and I, Bill Knowles, the guy that helped him during his recovery, who had worked on uh, Olympic athletes, ski, alpine skiers, said, he goes, I've seen a lot of knee surgeries. This was a big 
surgery in terms of how much damage was done to Tiger's knee. And, I mean, how he was able to even walk, let alone win, is is remarkable. So, Armin, what's that say about him? I mean, if, if no other golfer would ever even attempt that, much less execute that, what made Tiger Tiger? Was it the physical gifts? Was it the mental toughness? Or was it something else that separated him from everybody else? I think you're all of the above. I think mean, he's... Uh, physically as talented as, as, as anybody has ever seen on a golf course. Um, mentally, I mean, <laughs> there's a couple unnamed caddies in this, in this book who if I told you who they were, you would know. And it was so much fun talking to them because they literally, you know, um, would say they could just see, you know, the, the shrinking ball sack on the, on, the, uh, on the course. Guys wanted no part of Tiger on a Sunday, none, zero. And they would literally back up cause instead of having to be in the same twosome with him on a, on a Sunday in a, in a dogfight. So mentally, physically, I think creatively, he saw things on the golf course that nobody saw. That, that shot that he hit at 16 in the 05 Masters that dribbled into the cup, that famous, 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 famous Vern Lundquist call, what I found fascinating was was that at times when Tiger was alone or with friends in his hotel room, he would literally take a, a bathroom cup and put it on the other side of the bed. He'd have a wedge on, on one side of the room. He'd be chipping over the bed. He couldn't see the cup. And the ball would either tink off the top of the cup or land in the cup more times than not. And you think, how in the world can somebody from that lie find the faint pitch mark that he wanted to hit on the green and then hit it on the size of a quarter, you know, or a nickel, exactly where well that's him that's like Wayne Gretzky right yeah like Gretzky would see things he had eyes in the back of his head he would see things that nobody else could even conceptualize right Crosby you know Gretzky these people that have this innate vision in their own sport that that transcends um it's genius I mean it's literally like Mozart or Beethoven somebody that comes around once in a lifetime and you never see it again what's the price of genius your second question in the yeah. book so then where does that leave you what's the price of genius? I think it's an enormous price I mean we all we all got to watch it and be enthralled by it and be entertained by it and awed by it but I mean none of us knew the person because he never let us in he was programmed not to let you in. And, and now when you peel all that away and you look at the price of, 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 of entertainment, of, of our enjoyment, it, but he's that, that solitary figure, um, untrusting, disdainful of the media, um, entitled, unappreciative, um, not really human. And I think Tiger now... I saw him at Torrey in January, um, and I had seen him a lot over the three-year period at various places, and I saw a different Tiger Woods than I had ever seen, um, more engaged, more appreciative, more outgoing. Can I get you to save that thought? I want to make sure we end with that and we have time for that. Okay. But when we talk about him being distrusting of the media, yeah. understandably so, there was the famous Charlie Pierce piece, but um, distrusting of the but, media... But, but famous Charlie Pierce piece... Whose fault was that? Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, if you're IMG, do you really? There's about he was fighting so far out of his weight that day. No kidding. I mean, yeah, you 
for those who don't know, Charles Pierce is a was and is a brilliant, brilliant sports writer, but not somebody to be trifled with. And if you're going to put somebody, one of your clients in front of him, you best know what you're dealing with. And he was fighting. Tiger was fighting way out of his weight class that Absolutely. day. Absolutely. And Charlie was seeing these things, and he's he's one of the great he's, – he's, he's about as good an observationist. I mean, that Gary Smith, Charlie Pierce kind of category is very small. And, you, you I mean, that's like – yeah, it's like – candy to a baby, right? you know, with, with Tiger at an age where he's so awkward and he's so ill-suited to be in that kind of a position. He's never been, he's had one girlfriend, serious girlfriend in his entire life. Um, he's a nerd and, and he's saying things that a nerd would say, but you don't say that in front of Charlie Pierce, you know, and Who you was writing don't, for GQ, you, for that piece right. for GQ. And you don't put Gary Smith with, with Earl Woods for your sportsman of the year, I mean, you do if you're, you're you do if you're SI, sure. But you don't say the things that Earl said, um, or maybe you do because you think this is the moment to make the pronouncement that he's going to be the chosen one. He mm. is the chosen one. I mean, I can't even imagine the kind of pressure that was on. There was already so much pressure on Tiger's shoulders as he was turning pro, and then you unleash. Earl, in that manner, he's going to change nation. Has the ability to impact nations, which he ended up doing. But why do you have to say it? Right. And so, it was. I mean, some of this was a self fulfilling prophecy with Earl. But you forget that it's that it's Tiger that's absorbing it all. Um, and there are certain times when. Like we looked at this, that's incredible um, interview. And Jeff and I kept looking at it and I was like, and I called him and I said, Jeff, have you, are you looking at the same thing I'm looking at? And he goes, Tita. And I said, yeah, do you see what she's doing? And she had this look on her face, like really more bullshit from you. Mm. And, and what are you doing to this kid? And Earl would just be pontificating. And because it, it made Earl feel good. He loved it. He loved, he loved it. it. So what I'm getting at, like Pierce, I mean, he Charlie Pierce did what he did. He did, yeah. he did his job. But what I'm getting at is, so Tiger is distrustful of the media, distrustful of people he doesn't know. I get that kind of on some level. But going back to what you said about Lindsey Vaughn, you know, the, what about the people he did know? What about yeah. the people he was close to? He would still cut them out of his life in a second. Like the story you tell about Marco Mira, I can remember yeah. very distinctly back in the day, Marco Mira loved Tiger Woods. They were very close. He was kind of a mentor, almost a father figure to him. Yet the story about him going into the World Golf Hall of Fame is just is terrible. It Tell is. the anecdote. Well, Mark's going into the Hall of Fame, and he has made it clear. Um, and he and Tiger did not talk um, for years after the 09 accident. Tiger cut out Charles Barkley, Mark O'Meara, uh, John Smoltz, um, all these people. Why that did he, he cut see. all them out? I think he was a, if you're asking me to speculate, I think A, he was embarrassed profoundly embarrassed. B, he was dealing with a lot of shit. I mean, you know, between the tabloid explosion and sex addiction treatment, he's trying to hold his marriage together. Um, I think there may have been a certain segment in his inner circle that said, you need to cut everybody out and focus on yourself. Mm -hmm. But all those guys wanted to do was help. It wasn't like they were going to try to Stomp on his they don't grave, want anything so from speak. him. Nothing, zero. But Mark was going in to the Hall of Fame, 
there were numerous, or at least on two occasions, where Mark made it clear to Tiger, hey, bro, this is important to me. You know, I, I, I want to have you there. Um, and it was at St. Andrews. The British Open is being played at St. Andrews. The induction ceremony is at St. Andrews. Tiger is playing in the tournament. 21 Hall of Famers show up to Mark's induction ceremony and to listen to Mark's speech. And I, I, I listened to that speech several times because I was waiting for him to acknowledge Tiger and the impact that Tiger had on his career. Mark never mentioned Tiger's name. And we could argue that Tiger was a had a profound influence on Mark's ability to, to win two majors because of the games that they played in Isleworth and what Tiger taught him about toughness on the golf course. Mark was, I mean, I, when I was walking with him, you could just tell in his voice you know, just how deeply disappointed he was. In, in, in Disappointed or heartbroken? Heartbroken. And Tiger was there and 21 other Hall of Famers show up and Tiger doesn't show up. I mean, it's not like he had to go across town. It was right there. Why? 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 I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how you don't show up. And Mark said it would have been good for him. It wouldn't have been so much for me. He would have been surrounded by people that, you know, would have given him the kind of comfort maybe that he was looking for at that point of his life. Um, but it was, it was heartbreaking for Mark. And, and, and I'll never, you know, sooner or later, you have to be a human being. And that was when those words came out of his mouth. We were walking. Well, Mira said that. Yeah, yeah. He, we were walking. It was in Tucson. I was at a Champions event. It was a Pro-Am. I had, you know, kind of showed up, credentialed, but showed up and caught Mark walking off, I think, the 13th green. Is that he, how you found him? Is that how you got him to speak to you? Yeah. I just, there was one of those conversations that you just knew you couldn't have over the phone. And we were, we have a house out here in California um, my wife and I drove over um, to Tucson, and it was a um, it was a Thursday because it was the pro am day on the Champions Tour, and um, and I I just walked up. He knew who I was, and he goes, Armin, what's up? And I'm like, Well, I'm working on a book on Tiger. He goes, Oh, and I said, I really like to talk to you. And he goes, Oh, and I said, Do you mind if I walk with you? He said, Okay, and we walked, and I you know Amazing. turned on my tape recorder and. Mark was gracious enough um, to walk for like four or five holes and still engage his, you know, his pro-am partners. But I was like, you know, I'm not going to get another chance at this. And then I was able, because I was, I was able to get Mark's, you know, cell phone number. And we talked subsequently about things because I wanted to make sure that we were right on certain things and, and, and um, that, that the texture of what we were saying was correct. But he was, I mean, he was just, he couldn't understand it. You know, it's like, what, how, why? After everything they went through together and what, I mean, Mark and Alicia were Tiger's really second parents in Isleworth. They helped him grow up. You could argue they were, they were the kind of parents that he was hoping to have growing up because the house was chaotic. The O'Meara's kids were in bathing suits jumping in. What's for dinner? Tiger would literally like- Idyllic, right? It was idyllic for him. It really was. And there's other scenes in the book that I didn't report, but Jeff had it even at the, when he was at the um, Newport at the 95 Amateur and he was staying in a, in a, in a, one of the members' homes and it was kind of a crazy night and Earl's pontificating in the kitchen and Tiger's watching a, you know, a show on television. The kids just come in and they don't even know, they don't know Tiger Woods from, you know, anybody. 
And, um, and they just end up like laying their uh, heads on his lap and watching television. And that was kind of a moment for Tiger where he could just be a normal kid. And how nice is that hmm. for him? But those were few and far between. It's like unconditional love, something you never saw. Yeah. Which brings us back to the original point where I jumped in, and you said over the last few years, you've seen him, and you've seen a change. So if the original question is, you know, who is Tiger Woods? Armin, who is he now? Has he changed, or do guys like that never really change? Well, I'm, I think he has changed. I think the, um, I think the experience on the, on, the, on the road and the highway in Florida, uh, Memorial Day weekend 2017, was a... Was was rock bottom. I don't think the, um, I don't think the fire hydrant in 09 was rock bottom. I think that picture, um, having a rock star cocktail of drugs in his system, the fact that he was in a car, he could have killed himself. He could have killed other people. I mean, he he thought he was in he thought he was in Orange County, California. He didn't know what state he was he in. He didn't know what state he was in. He was completely wasted, and I think. I know from just listening to him and from talking to other Can people. Can I ask you this? When you saw yeah. that part of the story, yeah. how did you think the story was going to end? I mean, um, I want to be very clear about this. This was Memorial oh, Day dude, last year, yes. right? That was, a, that was a tough day. I mean, I, forget about us. But if you're talking about investing three years of your life in a project and we're thinking this is how the book ends, this is not, this is not the way we wanted to see this book end. And you, you're looking at sort of Michael Jackson kind of moments here that are on, you're on that highway. Um, and Jeff and I were like, wow, what do, and I literally, Jim, I wrote like three or four or five different endings to this book. The last, let's say 400 words. And I, sometimes I would just mess with Jeff. I would write these really dark endings and I would send it to him. And I'd say, so what do you think of this? And it's literally Tiger standing in front of Earl's grave, you know, like that sort of dad, wow. how did we get here moment? Wow. Um, kind of bringing back the start of the book to the end of the book. Right. And he goes, he goes, Armin, we can't end the book like this. Mm. And I'm like, I know, I know, I know. But, <laughs> but, what, you, but, but what are we going to do? And right. then, um, then there were signs, you know, he had the, you know, the, the back surgery works. Um, I think his kids honestly are so important to him to be the parent to them that he never had when he was growing up a different kind of parenting um i don't think he wanted to see it end that way so he got physically he got healthy spiritually and i think emotionally and there were some things going on you know at hazeltine at the Ryder cup where he was much more engaged with with the fellow pros um but it was changing and when i saw it at tory um I was like, wow, he's, he's actually acting human. I mean, this is human interaction here. And then I saw a woman named Deb Ganley, who is a San Diego um, police officer who's part of Tiger's security force when he plays at Tory and played at the Open. I saw her at Shinnecock just, you know, last month. And um, I said, Deb, how's it going? She, we were talking about Tiger and everything because she's a huge fan of Tiger and she really likes Tiger and so many different levels. And she goes... She goes, Armin, I, I got a hug from him. Mm. He hasn't hugged me in 18 years. Mm. First time I ever got a hug when he saw me. So those little kinds of things where for somebody like Deb Ganley, who's so proud of the fact that she's part of Tiger's world in a little way. Um, and I mean, a hug would have gone a long way for um, Peggy Lewis, you know, would have gone a long way for um, 
I don't know, uh, his first girlfriend, you know, to say, look, this isn't going to work, but, um, you know, I love you and, and I hope I see you again, but instead of a letter, instead of a letter. Yeah. And no, and, and not speak to her for, has never said a word to her since. I mean, that's, I mean, you talk about cold hearted. Um, that's it. So how does this story end? Um, well, if I'm, am I looking in a crystal ball? Um, I think he wins again. I really do. I think if he, if his back holds up and I think that's still a question because you know, that, that's Tory Venner or a major, like what does he win again? I don't know. These majors are, you know, they're so, I can't this, see it, and this field, no, this field is so deep now. And it's almost like, look what you created. I mean, all of these guys now, the Justins and, and the Jordans and the Rickies and Rory's and everybody that came, John Rahm, that everybody now are, and there's, I can name four and you can name four or five other ones. Sure. They're all so good and they're long and they're, and they're, they're, not, they're afraid, not afraid of him anymore. They're not afraid right. of him anymore. And they say the right things and God bless them because they do. But if you, if you talk to certain people on tour, they're not, they're not afraid of Please, him. Please, they'd love to see him on a yeah. Sunday. But that being said, one time... In a major, would mm-hmm. it be what would it be like to see him on Sunday coming down the last nine holes against Ricky or against Rory or against Jordan? I mean, it would be, be amazing. So like, electric. Like, Armin, I want to be the guy to say that the tour doesn't need this, it doesn't need that. Oh. But the fact is, you've said it yourself, he doesn't move the needle. He is the needle. Yeah. Is he still oh, at yeah. this age? No or question. Is? I mean, I, I'm, I'm blown away. I, I'm a golf fan. I play the game. I love the game. I love to watch it. I listen to PGA Tour radio. And when he came back, just and when they were in the Bahamas at the Hero, it was wall to wall on on PGA Tour radio, Golf Channel. They can't get enough of this, and and it's 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 great for the game, and it's a whole generation, I think, of fans who are fascinated by the story, you know, the rise, the run, the, the arc ep- is insane, the, right? The Have you ever seen no. an arc like that? No, literally in anybody's life. He's 42 years old, too, Romy. I mean, it's like, you know, he's got another half a life to live, Hmm. at least. And he's lived two lives, it seems like, or three lives already. You know, rise, run. The the epic fall from grace, the comeback, the redemption. Now, this redemption story, speaking of, you know, like trying to end a book. When he came back and we saw him and he was playing well, and we're like, oh, my God, thank you very much. And I think that there's... There's so many people that want to see him succeed because, honest to God, I, I mean, when you talk to, about the depths of a fall, you can argue maybe Lance Armstrong. I don't think so. Um, because, it, it, yes, it was international, but it wasn't the tabloid fame and infamy that Tiger experienced. O.J. Simpson, O.J. was retired. And, yes, that turned into a, 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 a monumental event in American history, but but there wasn't social media, there wasn't TMZ, there wasn't this hounding um, and pounding of the press that he experienced. There wasn't the public humiliation that he suffered in that That's press the key conference. Right there, right? I mean, that, that, oh my the, God, the tiger. The, the, the irony to me is the guy who went harder than anybody else to never ever let you in ever suffered the most public humiliation of anybody of all. Absolutely. Right. You're absolutely right. And to have to stand up in front of the world and apologize in a 13-minute address that he didn't write, um, I, it's the humiliation and the humbling and the fall from grace is, is, I think, unmatched almost. And then 
to be in that deep, dark hole, to be where you're, you're self-medicating to the point that he was self-medicating, where you're lonely, where you're, you can't get out of bed for days and weeks at a time, as dark of a place that he was in, the fact that he came out of that hole and is in the place that he is right now, to me, is the greatest triumph of his, of his life. You can take all the majors and the 79 tour wins and put them over there. And as far as I'm concerned, the fact that Tiger Woods is who he is today and didn't stay in that hole, um, to me, is that's a testament to his will. That's a testament to whatever that genius is that, that he has in, in his mind and his body, uh, to me, is... is um, he used every bit of that to come out of that hole. So, Armin, if you've used every investigative tool that you could have possibly have had, Jeff Benedict as well, and you poured three years into this, and, and the book is absolutely amazing. I mean, if you, I, you, I think I remember, I don't know if you remember, I told you, I thought Raw Recruits was one of the most astounding books I've read. God, I love that book. That was an amazing, amazing book. It still is. So, well, I'm not give at all Alex surprised. Wolf a big pat yeah, on the back. Yeah, I loved it. Loved yeah. it. I haven't talked to Alex in a long time, but I asked, at that time when I read that book, I was so blown away. I'm like, damn, this is amazing. Is this what goes on? I just talked to Sonny Vaccaro yesterday. Boy, what we're a character, s- huh? We're still friends. Yeah. And I love Sonny in a lot of ways. See, we, and, we understand this. On the way up and to do something like that at that time is really significant. And then you'll look back on this and feel the same way about this. Where do you go from here? I mean, I know you have things to do. Is there another book? Do you walk off on that book? Where do you go after this, the definitive work? That's a good question. Um, I can tell you this. I'm not, I'm not working on another book for, uh, <laughs> in the foreseeable future. Because um, coming off the system, I, you know, I, I didn't know I had another one in me. And then this came our way. And I was like, okay, I'll dump... I'll jump in the in the pool one more time. Um, it's interesting, you know. I'm in a, I'm in a point in my life right now. I just turned 65 not too long ago. I've had a, a you know, I guess it's fair to say a pretty big run for 30 plus years at high levels of journalism. Um, I don't know. I'm, the next chapter is going to be interesting for me. I, I I'm I'm not entirely sure where it's going to go, but I've I've had the benefit of of having some time to to sit back and and um, kind of analyze, you know, where our business is. Right now, yeah, that's and a whole other podcast. That's a we whole can do other one podcast. Day. And what part of that business I want to be in? Do I want to commute to New York City, which I've been doing, you know, for sixty sports and sixty minutes, and the 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 unexpected and shocking cancellation of sixty sports? Um, uh, you know, threw me for a loop. Fortunately, I've been I say it, I haven't said it publicly, but you know, I've been paid not to work for the last year or so, and it's afforded me an opportunity to step back. And, and really look and see what I want to do next. I'm, uh, I think it's fair to say I'm, I'm executive producing a, a 30 for 30 film, an investigative film for ESPN. I've got some other opportunities that I'm going to be involved with long form um, storytelling, which I, I think at this point in my life where I have some, some real control over it, that's what I want to do. I want to be involved in, with, with high-level people in, in important projects that, that are um, you know, game changing in terms of the of when they finally air. Um, the book has been optioned, and, and um, a major network's going to turn it into a documentary, a four-hour documentary. So I'm working on that with Jeff and and, um, and Alex Gibney, who's an Oscar-winning you know director. So it's kind of fun, you know, at this point in my life to to have some different options. But it's still going to be storytelling. I mean, I've always been a storyteller, and um, you know, I, I love to tell stories. And, um, you know, where that is next, uh, I'm not really sure, but, um, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not that worried about it at this point in time. I'm, I'm, I'm really sort of, I'm not sort of, I'm very excited to see what it's going to be, but you know, it's not the same. We were talking about it before our business is changing so fast and, you know, people are screaming louder and louder to get attention. And, uh, I've actually gotten quieter. I've let, I've let my work speak for me, my reporting speak for me. And, um, I think that's what I'm going to continue to do. It's like, you know, less is more these days in a lot of ways. God, Armin, it's amazing, isn't it? When you, we talk, like when you and I talked about Raw Recruits, that book was written in 95? Uh, 96? 1990. 90? Yeah. 90? Yeah. You know, here we are decades later talking about this book. Yeah. You mentioned, quote, the stunning cancellation of 60 sports. Yeah. I would add to that the stunning cancellation of Jim Rome on Showtime. Hey, listen, you and I have had amazing opportunities and worked at a very yeah. high level. Getting canceled is no fun, no matter where you are No, and, what I, and I'll be honest with you. that We were in the middle of a three-year um, commitment from Showtime, and in, we found out, I didn't know that it, the word had gotten sort of told to us late in 16, but in early 17, when the word finally got to me um, that the March show was going to be our last show, we were, we were stunned, and I frankly was... Um, I was, I was really upset because I, that was in many ways, that was my show. I was a lead correspondent. I took it very seriously and we produced some, some, some great stories on that show. And for reasons that had little to do with what we were doing as far as editorially, uh, the rug was pulled out from us and in it, in it, I was pissed off and it, it affected me in ways that I'm not going to get into here, but it's CBS that are, I'm still dealing with because of certain contractual obligations and certain um, my inability to appear on the network um, because of the way that my contract was was um, was paid off and, and it was structured and it 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 was um, after all the anger and and the shock kind of subsided I just it was it became a blessing in disguise because you can step back and say okay I just turned sixty five I'm I'm now have an opportunity to explore other things that I, and, and frankly, this book would not be what it is if that show had not been canceled. In a way, it was, it was a gift because I was allowed in the last year of the book to really pour every part of my body into it. And if I was doing pieces for 60, the Sunday show and for 60 sports, I would not have had that time. So I look at it as a, as a gift in certain ways, but it doesn't mean that you're not, um, you're not upset about it, uh, especially when you kind of pour, and I know how you work and I've, We've known each other a long time, and I'll say this. When you were at Santa Barbara and I was on your show and you called me up and thanked me and wrote me a note and thanked me uh, at a time when that didn't happen very often in our business, and I thought, well, this guy's different. You know, he, he understands that how this business works. And, you know, your success, I know, is in a large part a byproduct of, of a great passion and, and respect for the business. And I, you know, I see a lot of... I don't. I wouldn't call it passion these days. I would call it. Um, I would call it noise. And uh, so I'm still. You know. I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, I'm not. I'm not riding off into the sunset quite yet. No, clearly not. <laughs> and, and I appreciate you sharing that story, Armin. Listen, this is episode 44 of this podcast, and far and away the longest conversation I've had. I really, really appreciate you and coming in and the time that you spent with this. But I think to really fairly 
Give this thing the respect it deserved. Tiger Woods, the book. I mean, we needed this time. I could have done another two hours on this oh. easily. I do not want to Thanks. overstep. My uh, my boundaries are welcome even in this house. I, I really want to compliment you on this. It was so good to get caught up with you. The book is absolutely fascinating. It's brilliant. It is a must-read. And I really appreciate your time today, Arnie. Thanks, Roman. Zipa is spelled Z-Y-P-P-A-H. Z-Y-P-P-A-H. It's actually happy Z spelled backwards. Now, if you go to bed with a Zipa, you wake up with happy Zs. Did you know that one night of bad sleep can ruin your entire day? Are you planning a summer vacation? You do not want to ruin the entire vacation with snoring all night long. Vacations are supposed to be a time for rest and recovery and relaxation. Well, how do you expect to get any rest if there's somebody snoring all night? What if that somebody is you? If you're snoring, you're not sleeping, and neither is anybody else. This is why you need to get a Zipa before you leave on vacation. If you or somebody you know snores, just go to Zipa.com. Zipa is guaranteed to stop snoring. You've got nothing to lose. If you're not happy for any reason at all, just return it. Get a full refund. Snoring is rude. It's disrespectful. And it's offensive because there is a solution. Do not ruin another summer vacation with snoring. Get your Zipa today by going to Zipa.com. Zipa.com. Ensure you and everybody around you has a great summer vacation. So, no voicemails this week, but I will check the tape on the next episode. In the meantime, you want to hit me up. Write this number down. Put it in your phone. Hit me up directly. 949-385-0447. 949-385-0447. Get on the machine. Then listen to see if you make the cut on episode 45. I'm not going to rip this thing. I just took a much-needed break. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. While you're here, can you please make sure you subscribe and review? It is huge for the exposure of the pod, and I appreciate it so much. Also, it is officially Smack Off Week, Friday, July 20th. The best of the best. Go toe-to-toe. You're not going to want to miss that. So make sure you tune in to CBS Sports Radio or catch it on the Radio.com app. If you have Sirius XM, we're on channel 206. If you have DirecTV, check the simulcast on channel 221. Dish, channel 158. Make sure you listen live. It is the very best way to experience it. I'm back next week with F45 on the pod before taking a two-week break. So make sure you check it out. I'll see you then. I cannot believe we're in the middle of July. 2018 is flying right on by, and we all want to make sure we continue to elevate our game to that next level and make 2018 the best year ever. If you're a contractor or a builder or a remodeler, listen up, because elevating your game for the rest of this year got a lot easier thanks to my friends at Lumber Liquidators and their LL Pro Plus program. Let me lay it out for you. LL Pro Plus is Lumber Liquidator's new pro services team that you can call on for all your professional flooring needs. LL Pro Plus will help you crush it this year with professional pricing and dedicated support to get you what you need when you need it so you can get all your projects finished on time. LL Pro Plus gives you the ultimate value and quality and with LL Pro Plus, no job is too large. No job is too small. So put the flooring experts on your team today. Visit your local Lumber Liquidator store or go to LumberLiquidators.com. Again, LumberLiquidators.com. Let's continue to make 2018 the best year ever with Lumber Liquidators.